This week's podcast uh, is actually an issue of the month. And the reason for that is because we're covering uh, a very important paper that's come out from the EU. Health systems across the world face a common set of challenges, uh, and not least of all, the gap between the resources they have available and demand or need, or demand and need indeed. The way we've dealt with that gap over uh, the past few years has been to put in place what we at the Oxford Centre for Triple Value Healthcare call the Fab Four, alluding to those famous comic book heroes. They are productivity, clinical effectiveness, quality and safety, and prevention. And they've all had dramatic impacts on uh, healthcare in many different ways. But nevertheless, that gap between demand and need and resources continues. It's also worth bearing in mind that resources isn't just simply about money, which sometimes people think it is. Probably our most precious resource nowadays is workforce, particularly clinical workforce, but also things like leadership time and, of course, the amount of carbon we're using. Healthcare actually chews up and spews out a lot of carbon, and we do need to start to consider that much more seriously than we have been in the past. So this week we're talking about an important paper that's come from the EU called Defining Value and Value-Based Healthcare, and it's an opinion piece by the expert panel on effective ways of investing in healthcare. Uh, at 3V, we were delighted that our founding director, Professor Samir Gray, was chosen as an expert to the panel. And it's hardly surprising Muir wrote his first paper on this subject in 1983, uh, the four-pox model, it's in The Lancet. And uh, uh, when you read the report, those of you who've read Muir's work or know what he's done, you'll see the golden thread uh, running right through it. So Muir, uh, congratulations, a terrific report, and it's great to see uh, your work going into there. Tell us a little bit, what, why did they do this? There's been terrific achievements in healthcare in Europe in the last 40 years, but we're now seeing this gap between health care need and demand on one side and resources on the other growing. We're also seeing that resources are not going to go in at the rate they've gone in the last 40 years. I mean, the increase in budgets in every country have been terrific, much less in Eastern Europe than in the West. Uh, but in both Bismarck systems, insurance-based systems and tax-based systems, there's been a rate of growth. that People are now understanding, well, we cannot carry on in this way when we look at the problems of, say, education, primary schools, for example. So there's a realisation that we've got to get more value from the resources that are invested. And the methods we've used have increased the efficiency of the services, and that does improve outcome. But efficiency is different from value, and that is one of the key issues that this report had to address. Not just making care more efficient, but increasing value. They gave it four different definitions of value, different aspects of value. Firstly, not an order priority, but they're, they're all the same in terms of importance, what's called allocative or population value. How well is the money distributed to different subgroups of the population, to people with cancer or people with mental health problems or people in the last year of life, for example? Secondly, what's called technical value. Once the money's been allocated to people with musculoskeletal disease or rheumatoid arthritis, 
how well is it used for all the people in need? And this, I think, is was part of the crunch discussion that some of the writing on value comes from the United States, but when they talk about value, they mean the efficiency of the service for the people who reach that service. Because of the principle of solidarity, we in Europe have to consider the people who don't reach the service. And usually, poor people reach technical special services less often than wealthy people. So when the money has been allocated to, for example, people with rheumatoid arthritis or people with asthma, then the, the service needs to be responsible for how all the people in need are seen or covered directly or indirectly. Then there's population value. Uh, personal value is the third edition. And personal value is how that individual values what happens to them. Now, if we take a simple example of having your knee replaced, the issue is the individual needs to think of, well, what really matters to me? What is the problem that I'm trying to tackle? And how do I weigh up the risks and benefits of the intervention? And then the fourth aspect of value is the term societal value or social value. And this is a much broader concept. The broader concept would involve things like what is the impact of the health service on the population in which it is based. An example was discussed at the working group would be should you try and encourage people from the local housing area to get more involved in nurse training, for example, or medical training by reaching out to those grim housing estates around many hospitals. That would be an example of social value. It doesn't have a direct impact on the people we're treating now, but the people in these housing estates are paying for the health services in one way or another. So what are we doing for those local people as opposed to just busing an expert from somewhere else? So those are the four dimensions of value. Allocative, or population. Technical, which is much greater than efficiency. Personal, for every individual. And societal. So in summary, um, you know, whilst they recognise the work that Porter and others have done uh, around his definition of value, they, the, the, the summary is that actually that's fine maybe for a, a more market-based system where they're just focusing on the people within treatment, but not for systems such as those right across the EU and indeed covering most of the world where there's universal coverage and there's a degree of solidarity around the, um, the access to healthcare. And indeed even that access to healthcare is, in, is one of the pillars of social rights, isn't it, within the EU? So, um, so I think so. This is helpful, isn't it? It's really coming down and saying, look, this is quite clearly what value is, because you and I have both been in discussions where people have sort of said there's some ambiguity, and here it is. It's coming out, and it's been very clear. If you work in a universal health system like the NHS or uh, anywhere in Europe, this is the, we should be using this kind of definition. That's all very well. Uh, but Muir, you're not just about definitions, you're also thinking about what we do. And it's worth probably just reminding people the, the five things that we reckon that people need to get on with to actually put these four definitions into, into action. We're moving on now to the third dimension of healthcare. So for the last 50 years, we've been looking at two dimensions. One is the bureaucratic dimension. Uh, that is the dimension to do with the allocation and use of resources. 
It might be regions or neighbourhoods or in England CCGs. And bureaucracies are very important. And indeed, one of the issues for the European Union report was a specific mention of fighting corruption, because in some parts of Europe, the money that goes into healthcare doesn't actually reach healthcare, maybe 10% vanishes. So you need uncorrupt and good bureaucracy. But that's quite a limited issue. Uh, bureaucracies are good for the uncorrupt management of money and the proper management of pro process, for example, employing, employing people uh, on merit and not on relationships. The second dimension, which has been very important, has been the levels of care. Self-care, primary care, secondary care and tertiary care. And Europe as a whole, like all other countries in the world, has really focused on primary, secondary and tertiary care. And it's very important to do that. But the third dimension focuses on populations defined by need. That might be people with back pain or people with epilepsy or people in the last year of life, or people with multimorbidity. Now what is emerging is five new activities. So we have to carry on with the Fab Four, with prevention, effectiveness, efficiency, productivity and quality. But the new five are, firstly, to create what's called a culture of stewardship, uh, with governance to ensure collective responsibility. By this we mean that everyone, everyone in the health service, I mean every doctor, every nurse, and you could say every patient, needs to think not just about the cost of treating this person in front of me, but what's it going to be like in 10 years' time if I carry on ordering lab tests at the rate we're doing at the moment? The culture of stewardship. So that's a cultural change. Secondly, every health service needs to define the population subgroups. I've mentioned people with epilepsy, people in the last year of life. There are different ways of organising it. But there is a need to think not only of primary, secondary and tertiary, but to find the population subgroups with a common need and then to allocate the resources optimally. Because we know from England, where we're able to measure this, there's huge variation in the resources allocated to, for example, people with musculoskeletal disease or people with respiratory disease. Thirdly, for each of the systems that we identify, people with headache, for example, or women with pelvic pain, we need to design a value framework for each of these subgroups. By that I mean we need to define what are the outcomes that really, really matter to individuals. Not the diagnosis so much, but the outcomes that really matter. And what are the objectives of what we're trying to achieve? Fourthly, we need to deliver the value through networks, not through institutions, but through networks. And the networks, for example, the network for people with headache in a part of Lombardia or a part of Wales, that network needs to be responsible for equity as well as for stewardship. That's the key thing there. And then the fifth factor, which some people might say is the first factor, is to ensure that every individual makes decisions to optimise their personal value. I think this is a good point to finish on. Sometimes the clinicians are seen as being in battle with the managers and the, we don't like that approach. We prefer the phrase people who manage and lead and most of those people are also clinicians. And what we see is that if we helped individuals really make decisions on the basis of what mattered to them, they would almost certainly use less healthcare resource of low value 
than if they, they go into the decision not fully informed. So those are the five new activities. Create the culture of stewardship, define the population subgroups and allocate resources. Thirdly, design for each population subgroup a system based on outcomes that matter to individuals. Fourthly, deliver the service equitably through networks that bring together primary, secondary and tertiary and self-care. And, and fifthly, to ensure that each individual makes decisions that are right for them. The future is value-based healthcare and we're very proud to be involved in this and it's highly relevant to every country committed to universal health coverage, to solidarity, and that means every country apart from the USA. <laughs> very good. Maybe the UAE, by the way. Um, anyway, so very good. So we have um, we have now a clear definition of what value-based healthcare is for uh, universal health systems, uh, like uh, like the NHS or others. And uh, Muir just outlined the five steps we need to take to deliver that uh, that form of value-based healthcare. Thank you very much, Muir, and congratulations again on uh, your work being recognised. Thank way. you very much.